seven as we continue this kind of talk about uh, what it means to be killing our sin. Romans seven thirteen through 25. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right... Evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inward being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Do you ever feel um, like you're in some kind of game that you don't know the rules of? Do you feel like that's what life is described like sometimes, that the rules keep changing? We used to go to Easter, we still do, with great friends of ours. And uh, about four or five years ago, we found ourselves late into the afternoon on Easter Sunday, just two couples, and one of the couples, you know him, I'm not going to mention his name, he goes to this church, but he grew up in Zimbabwe before he came to play tennis at Wofford. And somehow we got on this conversation of, what was funny about that, what did I say? He grew up in Zimbabwe before he came to play tennis at Wofford, is that what I said? Oh, that was just funny in and of itself? Okay. Um, he grew up in Zimbabwe, and... As the story goes, he was playing uh, cricket when he was in Zimbabwe, and we spent time, that afternoon, we spent time, I said, could you please explain to me cricket? Could you please explain to me, like, how does this work? I know absolutely nothing about this game. And so uh, he pulled up a, I don't know what they're called, a game of some type, and we watched the whole game, and he said, now this is what happens, and this is how the ball spins this way, and this is what they're doing now. It just looks like crazy people in white running around. You ever feel like you don't know the rules of the game? Like you somehow don't understand exactly what's happening? Do you feel like the rules of the game have changed? Do you feel like what used to be right in this country isn't right anymore? What used to be evil is now called good, and what's good is now called evil, and that everything has shifted somehow? Well, hopefully this sermon will explain to you how this game of life is at least played. Situationally, three points. This helps you to understand your heart. Theologically, this gives us a framework for joy. And practically, this shows us how to live in this world. First of all, situationally, this helps us, this text helps us to understand our hearts. The situation for Paul here is he needed to defend himself because he's accused. What's he accused of? 
he's accused of playing uh, loose with the scriptures. He's accused of not taking holiness seriously. Uh, He's accused of so many things, of uh, nothing is sacred. He's accused of bowing down to culture. He's accused of, of loving grace too much. See, Paul was, if you remember, a Pharisee of Pharisees. Paul was the poster boy, not for most wanted, but Paul was the poster boy for being the most obedient. That's who he was, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He did everything right. He kept the law perfectly. And now he describes himself as the chief of sinners. Jesus knocked him literally off of his high horse and completely changed the rules of the game. And the rules that he was playing by, the rules that he thought were perfect and were right, the rules he thought were going to earn him salvation, he realized those are all wrong. And so now he's defending himself. And you can see that in this text. You have to go back a little bit to passages I didn't read, but just look at verse 7. He says, what shall we say then? The law is sin by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to cover If the law had not said, you shall not covet. So he's being defensive there. Again, in verse 11, there's a tone of defensiveness. For sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. Kind of blaming somebody else. Verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. In other words, what can I do? Same thing happens in verse 16. Over and over again, Paul is saying he's defending himself. He's recognizing that the rules of the game have changed with Christ. That it's no longer just keeping the law. It's no longer just keeping moralism, being a good Pharisee, which is going to earn your salvation. Now everything has changed. He realized what the great scholar Blaise Pascal, French mathematician and philosopher said when he said there are only two kinds of men the righteous who think they're sinners and the sinners who think that they're righteous and maybe today you feel like the the game has changed so much I know I do I feel like like most of you that the tectonic plates underneath us have shifted in such a way that most of us are struggling beyond just the global pandemic that we've been living through Beyond just the political world, the reshuffling of evangelicalism and all of those things, we feel like everything has kind of shifted a little bit and we're not really sure what the game is anymore. What are we supposed to be doing? I mean, do we just matriculate through and go to college and get a good job and do that? But the college rates are down, you know, like 40% of men are not going to college anymore. All the game is changing. How you make money now is changing. Everything's changing. So what do you do? You can either be anxious about that, or you can say, okay, God, you're still awesome. Curtis DeBose, one of our pastors, he's my personal pastor. Curtis DeBose is in Hawaii right now, so don't pray for him this week. He's fine. (laughs) You pray for the rest of us, but Curtis is doing okay. He sent us a text. We said, we're going to need some pictures. He sent us a text, and he said, uh, sent us some pictures. He said, we went to church this morning, then we got out of church, and there was a 6.1 earthquake. And then he said, it was awesome. That's what he said. (laughs) Because Curtis is the one of anybody on our staff, Curtis is the one that's constantly telling us, I'm ready to go see Jesus anytime. Anytime he wants to come. I'm ready. I'm ready now. And I keep telling him, no, I can't replace you right now. It's going to take me years to train another person. Like we, no, we can't do that now. 
But Curtis saw the earthquake. He felt that shiver of the earth, and he said, that's awesome. Look, in times of uncertainty, you can look to things of this earth for your comfort, or you can feel the tectonic plate shift. You can feel the unsettling nature of the world that we're living in, and you can say, God, you're awesome. In part of my study, I ran across this survey, uh, <laughs> this academic survey, and here's a conclusion. In a historical study of 35 dictatorships, so this author, this scholar, studied 35 dictatorships across the span of human history. In the historical study of 35 dictatorships, all of them, 100% of them, emerged during times of social distress. Unhinged from habits, people look with greater intensity to authority figures for their remedies. So that's the natural reaction of what will happen. But the natural reaction of Christians is to say this, much like Paul does later in Romans chapter 8. No, in all of these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. The point is not just the win. The point is to realize when everything shifts, our God is still sovereign. He still knows exactly what's happening. He goes on to say, For I am sure that neither death nor life, angels or rulers, neither the present things or powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God as in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, when everything is shifting, when we don't know what's up and what's down, the rules of the game are this. Don't forget the amazing love of Christ for you, and there's nothing that can separate you from it. Now, in the situation of this text, we start to understand our own hearts. Uh, The question that's been posed by scholars for years is this. uh, Is this speaking about somebody who's a Christian or somebody who's not a Christian? Is this somebody pre-conversion or post-conversion? But look at the text, verse 20. If you think this is talking about somebody who's a Christian, would they ever say verse 20? Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it but sin that dwells in me. But if this text is speaking about somebody who's not a Christian before they're converted, how can they ever say verse 22? For I delight in the law. They could never say that. See, I think that dichotomy which has been put out is a false dichotomy. I think what Paul's doing here is he's trying to help us understand that whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, living this way without the Spirit, living by your morality with the law is not going to help. It's going to show you the situation of your heart. And it's going to help you to understand your heart. That without the Spirit of Christ, you're going to have this eternal conflict with your spirit, with sin that is indwelling. It's a difficult passage, but your heart is difficult. Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful and beyond cure. Who can possibly understand it? And so the difficult passage where Paul says, I want to do this, but I can't do this. But I really wish I could do this, but I feel like I keep going back to this. All of that difficulty is all wrapped up in us. And that is good news. And here's why. Because so many of us sitting in the pews during the week, being here, being out in the world, constantly ask the question, why can't I do better? Why can't I change? Why do I keep running back to that sin? Why do I keep gossiping like that? Why do I keep falling into that same pattern time and time again? And Paul says, this is why you have this thing called indwelling sin. You know what it's like when you feel ill? You feel some kind of physical illness. 
Do you know what you want? You just want to know what's wrong with you. You'll accept a diagnosis, even if it's a bad diagnosis that you don't want, because you just want to know what's wrong. Like, why do I keep acting this way? Why do I have this problem? Why can't I get better? And here Paul lays it out. Like any other world, unlike any other world religion, the Bible lays out, here's exactly the problem you're going through. Here's your diagnosis. You've got the law, but you have this indwelling spirit. And without the spirit, without this a spirit that conquers that indwelling spirit of sin, you're never going to improve. And so the situation helps you to understand your heart. But then the, theolo- the theologically, there's a framework for joy. First of all, we see from this text, and we're going to go back to Romans chapter 5, so get your Bibles, that the law has its limits. Uh, back in Romans 5, if you want to go back there, Romans 5.20, it says, Now the law came... To increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So the argument that Paul makes all the way through, starting at Romans 5, is this. You're not justified by the law. You're justified by faith. And then when you get to sanctification, sanctification is not, okay, now I'll take it from here. Thank you for justifying me. Now I'll take it from here and I'll do this by my own. No, he's saying, look, you are justified by grace alone. And now as you move to sanctification, meaning growing in your grace, growing in maturity, growing in holiness and all of those things, now you need the gospel for that too. You can't just say the law was for that and now the gospel is for this. But the law is tricky, isn't it? In this passage, he talks about basically the Mosaic law, which are the Ten Commandments. And the question before us is this. Do we still need those? If grace has come, do we still need the Ten Commandments? And if so, what's the point of them? And if we keep them, do we get extra credit on the test? Like, how does this work? Well, there's three uses of the law, and these have been historically in theology for centuries and centuries. How do we understand what's the role of the law? The law is meant, the Ten Commandments are meant to do three things for us. First of all, they're meant to convict us of our sin to show us that we can't do it. Uh, So if, for example, it says, don't covet your neighbor's wife uh, or don't commit adultery, and you maybe say, well, I've never committed adultery, but then in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, but if you've ever looked at a woman lustfully in your heart, you've committed adultery already in your heart. The point of the law, in other words, as Christ says, is to convict you of your sin to show you that you can't do it by yourself. And then the second thing is it leads us to Christ. It shows us that he's the law keeper. He's the one that gives us his righteousness. As Jesus himself said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. And then lastly, it's useful for daily living. As you look through the Ten Commandments, it's still good not to covet. It's still good not to lie. It's still good not to envy. It's still good not to have any other gods before you. All of those things are still good. It's still good to keep those Ten Commandments, but those Ten Commandments and the law doesn't save you. It convicts you of sin. It leads you to Christ, and then they're useful to show you how to live. So that's the purpose of the law, but it has its limits. Its limits to convict us of sin, to lead us to Christ, and to make itself useful for daily living. But this framework for joy really comes with what we call godly grief. Look at verse 24. 
wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And you can feel the pain here with Paul. You can feel his uncertainty. I don't know how I'm actually going to get through this. I don't know how I'm going to live. I don't know how I'm going to put to death this sin. I feel like I'm wretched. I feel like I'm stuck. I feel like I can't improve. But he's grieving that. There is something to godly grief. Because godly grief goes through the same stages as our regular grief does. Uh, Our regular grief stages are these. There's seven of them. They've been kind of proven out historically. First of all, when you grieve, you go through a period of shock. Then you go through a period of denial. Then you go through a period of anger. Then bargaining. Then depression. Then testing. And then acceptance. Those are the seven stages of grief. And so when you're grieving your sin... When you're saying, I I feel like my sin is too much for me, I'd like to get rid of it. First of all, you go through this period of shock. Maybe I'm not really a sinner. And then you go through this period of denial. Uh, Maybe I sinned because it was more that problem, their problem, not my problem. Then you go through anger. Maybe you're anger at God or anger at your spouse. Then you go through a period of bargaining. God, if I string some good weeks together, uh, then will you be kind to me? And, and will that compensate for my sin? And then depression. I don't know if anything's ever going to change in my life. And then testing. Trying all these different things to try to get rid of your sin. I'm, I'm going to try harder this week. I'm going I'm to be more accountable this week. I'm going to confess. And then finally, acceptance. But it's not acceptance that you're a sinner. It's more acceptance that Christ is the one who has the power for you, that he's the one who's able to change us. It it says in 2 Corinthians 7, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, where worldly grief produces death. So there should be a godly grief. There should be a way that we're grieving over our sin. As Ignatius of Antioch says, it is impossible for a man to be freed from the habit of sin before you hate it. Just as it is impossible to receive forgiveness before confessing it. In other words, as Thomas, I love Thomas Watson. He's so pastoral. He says, till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. So now think about it. We talked about this a little bit last week. Think about a sin that you would like to go away in your life. A struggle. Whether it's gossip, whether it's envy, whether it's slander, whether it's lust, whether it's pride, whether it's self-righteousness. Think about something in your life that you would like to go away. Are you grieving it? Do you hate it? Are you still feeding it? Are are you ready to say, I want this out of my life completely? Are you willing to grieve the loss of it? To actually accept that you are a part of it, that lives in you, And now to ask God for the help, accept his help to get it out of you. 
You go through a grieving process when you say goodbye to your sin. It's a godly grief, as Paul tells us, that produces repentance. And we need it because sin, God doesn't give us, uh, doesn't prohibit sin because sin is joyful. God prohibits sin because it's hurtful to us. It makes you somebody that you don't want to be. It it makes you somebody that does things to other people that you don't want to do. It fills our lives with anxiety and shame and guilt. If you think about whatever sin you're struggling with, think about that one sin. We've been talking about finding that sin and, and find a way to extrapolate it out through the power of the gospel. Think about that one sin you've been struggling with for 10, 20 years. You have it in your mind? What joy has it really brought you? What what payout has really been yours? Where has it really helped you in life? Or has it constantly sold you a false bill of goods? Has it constantly provided and told you, I'll provide this thing for you, but it gives you this other thing? Has it constantly baited and switched you to think if you just do it one more time, then you'll be satisfied? Or if you just gossip a little bit more, then people will love you as a friend, whatever the situation is. And so what we have to do, like Paul, is say, what a wretched man I am. Who's going to help me? Who's possibly going to help me? See, God doesn't prohibit sin because it's, he's trying to rob us of joy. He prohibits sin because it's hurtful. Much like when I found my son when he was two. And I don't know how this happened. To this day, I don't know how this happened. But he was two years old, and he was sitting on the floor. And he had in his hand an eight-inch kitchen knife. Sharp, sharp, sharp knife. And he's kind of just waving around. He doesn't know, has no idea how sharp it is. And my heart rate went up to like 120 instantly. Just this thought that he's going to somehow slice something off of his face. And I went over there, not because I'm trying to rob his joy, which is what he thought. He immediately started crying when I took the knife from him. I wasn't trying to rob his joy. He has no idea how hurtful and harmful that was in his hand. And so when God says, look, here are the things that cause you to be a sinner. These are the things I want out of your life. It's because we have no idea how hurtful and harmful they are to us. There is a framework for joy in this text. And the joy comes with godly grief. Godly grief of repenting and saying goodbye to our sins so that practically, last point, we can live in this world. I'm going to read Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Beautiful text. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So how now do we live in this world? I just want to encourage you, last five minutes left, I just want to encourage you in these three things that we see in this text. First of all, the love of God the Father. 
that God the Father loves you. And he tries to find an illustration that would help us finite beings understand how much God the Father loves us. And here's the illustration. I love you so much, I'll send my own son, my own son, my only son to you to die in your stead, to take on the wrath. I love you that much. I love you all. I'll never do that for you. I'll never sacrifice my son for you. I don't, I don't love you that much. I love you, but I don't have that God-like love that God has for you. And when he sends his son, he punishes son with the wrath of God, which had to be punished in the flesh, so that, as it says, there's now no condemnation. When you're a Christian, there's no statue of limitations. Your sin can't be brought back up. There's no double jeopardy. You can't be retried over and over again. We have to remind ourselves there's no condemnation. The charges can't be brought up about what you did in college. That secret abortion. That secret affair. Stealing from your business partner. When you're found in Christ, it covers all of that more and worse. There is no condemnation for you at all. There's no condemnation. There's no charge that can be brought up where God himself will say, never thought about that one. Didn't know that. That's one too many. There's now no condemnation at all. And if there's no condemnation, if you're not condemnable, then you can be convictable. You can allow God's word to convict you because you can't be condemned. So you can live this beautiful life of saying, okay, there's now no condemnation, so I can confess and I can apologize and I can confess my sins and I can come to him because there's nothing that he can do. Then there's the grace of Christ. Christ has come to defeat our sin And look at what it says in verse 4. The righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in him. In other words, Christ completely changes the rules of the game for us. I love this quote from Robert Capon where he says, Grace cannot prevail unless our lifelong certainty with someone is keeping score has run out of steam and died. Grace can't win unless you finally let go of that lifelong certainty that there's a ledger between your morality and your sin, and somebody's keeping score. And the grace of Christ leads us to that. And then the Holy Spirit. Look at what he says in verse 2. For the law is the spirit of life who has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And it's the Holy Spirit that now indwells in us. So there feels like there's a war waging in your body because you've got indwelling sin. Now you have this spirit that lives in you that's trying to get all of that out of you. So it feels like you're in constant turmoil. But Christ will win the battle. We had um, a, a question and answer time with the seniors a couple of Thursdays ago. And I do, I'll do often extended question and answer times with the high school students. Um, I've done that on numerous occasions. You've heard me talk about that. I was so interested with the seniors. Am I going to get the same list of questions from the seniors that I get when I do this with the high school students? The answer is yes and no. A lot of people ask the same questions. 
Uh, the high school question, you know, they ask stuff about their parents that the seniors don't ask. Um, the seniors ask stuff that I've never gotten asked by a high schooler. Like, what's your view on cremation? No high schoolers ever asked me that. <laughs> no, none of them think they're going to die, right? But the seniors are like, I got to figure this out now. I got to figure out what's going on. Uh, the questions that I got at the end were some of my favorite. One person asked me, what's your favorite thing about the church? And I said, you are. You are. I, I mean that literally. We, we get the This group, we get the journey together in life and try to figure it out, and I just love it. The follow-up question to that was, what's the hardest thing in the church? I said, you are. <laughs> I said, I mean, same problem. We're all sinners. And then the follow-up question to that was, are you hopeful about the future of the church? And I said, yes, yes, and amen. Yes, I'm hopeful. Because we have the spirit of life. We're not condemnable. We have a Christ who's... Uh, promise to finish all of the work and we have a spirit who's going to live in us and with us until we all get home and in this crazy period of life where everything's shifting we have this wonderful experience to live differently for the glory of God Will Willimon says it this way he says our lives are eschatologically stretched between the sneak preview of the new world being born among us in the church and the old world where the principalities and powers are reluctant to give way. In the meantime, which is the only time the church has ever known, we live as those who know something about the fate of the world that the world does not yet know, and that makes us different. We know something from reading Scripture. We know something about our sin, about the struggle, about how we find joy and what the fate of the world is, which means we can live different in this world with joy and hope and peace, saying goodbye to our sins and not playing by the same rules of the game. There's a man in Michigan recently who um, died, which is not abnormal. A lot of people die in Michigan, I'm sure, every day. He, uh, he died, but this was a unique thing about his death. He died, and when they found him, they not sure how he died, maybe a heart attack, but when they found him, the police found him on the shores of this uh, lake in Michigan. They went through all of his belongings as you naturally would in that scenario. And you know what they found in his pocket? A winning lottery ticket. He had played the rules of the game in this world. Had the winning lottery ticket in his pocket and then croaked. He thought he won, Right? He thought that he won the game of life, that finally everything was going to turn around, everything was going to change. But the rules of the game have changed with Christ. And when we take our last breath, may we be found not with the treasures of this world in our pockets, but with the hope of heaven in our breast. In the name of the Father, and Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, we, we pray that you would help us to see Whatever it is in this text that you want to draw out. Father, we pray that you would 
Help us to actually really grieve our sin, to know the problem that exists within us and the struggle that exists. And that would at least help us know why we struggle so much. But once we see that, may we grieve it. And then may we look like Paul does. May we go from Romans 7 to Romans 8 and realize this beautiful truth that there's no condemnation for those in Christ. And that you, Spirit, Holy Spirit, you indwell in us so that we can be sanctified, so that we can grow, so that the sins that we've held on to for decades could just become a part of our story where we see that we're healed from that, that we've grown out of that with your grace, not because of our strength, not because of keeping the law, but because the law led us to you, and in you we found peace. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.